Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, How to Sell Anything to Anyone, a problem-solving guide for sales managers, leaders, and salespeople. Make sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod343. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am really looking forward to speaking with today's guest. In the conversations I've had with him so far, it's really just great to hear his philosophy and his approach to selling. He's got a great perspective. He's the CEO of Connect and Sell, where they deliver a week's worth of live business conversations in one hour. We're going to get into how that works later. He also co-hosts a podcast called the Market Dominance Guys podcast. He is based part-time in Arizona. So welcome to the show, Chris Beale. Hey, great to be here, Elizabeth. I'm so glad that you could join me, Chris. I've, I've loved our conversation so far. Um, but before we get into the rest of our conversation, could you introduce yourself a bit to our listeners? Sure. Uh, so I'm a I'm kind of this desert rat who grew up around animals and books. <laughs> and somehow that mixture led me off into the world of uh, actually physics and, and mathematics, which is what I ended up uh, going to college and studying. <laughs> going to college being a funny term for me, I kept running off to go climbing and stuff like that. But eventually, <laughs> you know, one one thing led to another, one school led to another, and, and I got out and uh, and I fell into the software industry in 1979 because, frankly, it's like Willie Sutton said about banks, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, it's where the money is, right? So I needed to support a, a family that was uh, coming into being, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, ended up in the software industry. And what I discovered very, very quickly was it was really frustrating to help customers use technology and then watch it be sold badly. And mm-hmm. so I took up selling the stuff that I was sort of helping to create or make work or whatever and found that the stuff I'd learned as a fuller brushman. And I'd been a fuller brushman selling door to door in Arizona for a little while because I, I needed to make a buck to take care of a medical situation that, that had befallen my wife and I. And uh, I found that, you know, you could think through sales differently. And so mm-hmm. one thing led to another there. I started companies, started uh, started starting companies in 1984, been doing it ever since. And here I am now running a company called Connect and Sell, where it's uh, it's really simple. It just is a way to let salespeople talk, B2B salespeople, business to business, talk to lots more targets and do it comfortably. And that's uh, that to me is kind of the magic of sales. And that's why I'm here. I started as the head of products and I've done every job in the company I can imagine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. So they made me CEO back in 2014. All right. Well, that's a great introduction. Thank you for, for telling that story, because I think you can, you can kind of see as a listener, where you develop the passion for what it is that you do. I think many of us um, might have worked in an organization where we weren't involved in selling and where we saw mistakes made in sales or um, opportunities missed in sales that you thought, oh man, if I could just... (laughs) you know, go over there and and say one thing or do one thing or ask one more question that you're not thinking of asking, we'd have happier customers, more customers, better results. And so that kind of pull into sales almost out of self-defense um, really resonates. Yeah, self-defense, that's a good way to put it. I'll never forget at NCR, I was 
I was uh, taking a customer through a deep demo of of a computer. Back then, you actually sold real computers, right? They were mm-hmm. physical things. And the customer was a big word processing company. And this particular computer was a perfect fit for them. The operating system was and everything. And the salesperson wouldn't ask for the deal. And I finally just turned to him and said, so it seems to me this is a perfect fit. And the only question is, should you buy one or should you buy another to have as a spare? Because this is so mission critical. And, and the prospect said, well, um, walk me through the economics. And I, I t- quickly took him through the economics of buying two instead of one. And he said, oh, I think we'll take two. <laughs> You know, I sold $300,000 worth of computers while the salesperson just stood there kind of mute. Yeah. And then they got the commission and you probably didn't. Oh, I I did not get the commission. Still to this day, I don't get commissions. So what can I say? (laughs) I've been in that situation as well. So I I do want to take maybe a, a little bit of a deep dive into how you realized the importance of what it is that you're doing right now in terms of optimizing the time that B2B outside salespeople can spend in conversation with buyers. And when I say it like that, it's pretty obvious, but I think a lot of organizations maybe haven't had that realization or they don't understand how that's possible because I see a lot of highly paid, valuable sales resources um, spending a lot of time in activities that don't seem to make sense. So I'd love to hear maybe how you discovered um, that that was such a problem and how you approach when you see that happening? Well, it's, it's a fascinating question because for me, I knew it was a problem quite a while ago. Um, for example, we were putting together a, a company back in 1998 and it was clear that we needed to talk to people that we weren't talking to. And somebody came up with some you know, some idea, oh, send them this, do this, do that. And I said, hey, Kevin, how about if you just make a list and start calling people? (laughs) And and within about two weeks, we had a completely different understanding of the business. We changed the product to match what we were hearing. And we built an immense book of business in about four weeks. And the board of directors, when we presented it to them, which is an unusual thing to present to a board, They said, well, this changes everything. We're actually going to move forward and continue to invest in the company. And I think we ended up selling about $40 million worth of what we were, what we'd sold zero of the year before uh, during the year 1999. And so that was kind of a wake up call for me about the power of using conversations, just talking to people to not only make sales, but to learn and to learn what's really going on, to exercise one's own curiosity on the marketplace by Mm. talking and listening. And then if I fast forward to how did I get involved in Connect and Sell, I was called by a a former employee of mine from a different company who wanted me to look at his company, so to speak, Connect and Sell. He was working as a head of customer success. And I had no interest whatsoever because I thought it was some kind of a dialer. I just looked at the website and I said, gosh, Ken, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? And he, uh, he, you know, talk about how to sell, uh, you know, anything to anybody. He pivoted immediately to selling me on meeting, on on having a meeting with the CEO the next day. Now, both of those were important. It was the CEO and it was the next day. And the CEO was kind of a, somebody I had heard of, but had never met. Uh, from the past, from back in the 80s of all things. So I went and met with that person. His name is Sean McLaren. He was the CEO of Connect and Sell. 
And he told me a story. And I listened to the story and I stopped him finally and said, and, and this is where the revelation took place with me. It was in three questions. I asked him, so it, do I get this right? You've reinvented the business telephone to call a list, not one at a time, but several at a time instead of one person. And in so doing, you've increased the flow rate of the only thing that I know that moves the needle in business, which is conversations between somebody who has a potential solution to a problem and somebody who might have that problem. And that's the only place where we ever discover that there's potential fit, even before we can deal with things like timing. So do you intrinsically have this problem? And then the next question is, is it a good time to consider solving it? May or may not be. And then, you know, maybe you don't have the money, maybe you do. It's that kind of thing. So I had an immediate vision of the entire innovation economy bottlenecked where I happen to know it's bottlenecked. Because I've built tech companies my entire career, I know where the problem is. And, and just from firsthand experience, the problem is always in the innovation economy that not enough conversations are happening with people who might have the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. And that, if that's the bottleneck, and I, I, I've mentioned I'm an old math guy, right? So the theory of constraints is big for me. I'm a big believer in Eli Goldratt's view of the world, which is every system has one and only one constraint. It's a mathematical truth. And your job in management is to find that constraint, understand it, characterize it, do an experiment or two to figure out how investment might move that constraint, widen it, get more stuff through it, and then invest in it. So here is the constraint for all of business. So I just looked at it and said, hey, all of us depend on the innovation economy. The business to consumer economy depends on the business to business economy. Businesses must bake things before consumers can buy things. I think that's relatively clear, but generally isn't delineated like that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the government economy runs at the end. They just collect taxes and have to do what they do. So everything depends in our society on the business-to-business -business innovation economy, which is pretty much the whole economy now, working. And the constraint that slows it down is the low flow rate of potentially relevant conversations. And so that's, I just jumped in and I literally jumped in to connect and sell on the spot. <laughs> I just told Sean, I'm working for you now. And he said, what if I'm not hiring? And I said, well, you know, it's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. <laughs> whether you pay me or not. Exactly. That's that's such a great uh, summary. And that idea of not enough conversations, because what I often hear when I talk to sales leaders is we're not having enough prospects. We don't have enough qualified prospects. And there's a difference between not enough qualified prospects and not enough conversations with people who have problems. And I think it can be really easy to solve for that first one, right? I'm going to buy a list. I'm going to get some kind of a software solution. I'm going to um, implement lead capture in all kinds of different areas of our website. And you can have the biggest list in the world. But if you're not turning that into conversations, and if those conversations aren't with people who have problems, you just have a list. That's for sure. I mean, it's it's funny. We're always attracted in life to things that are, I'll call it easy and obvious, where we can do something and look at the result and it 
it feels good. It feels like we've made progress. And making lists is one of those things where it's kind of easy and obvious. So it feels really good to make a list and look at the list and play with the list. But the list never buys anything from us. Mm -hmm. The list is just a list. And the gateway through which we have to pass with somebody before we can build a relationship sufficient that they trust us enough to buy from us. And that's really what the issue is. You know, the list can't trust us. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of dead bits somewhere. But a human being can trust another human being. And the core dynamic of business-to-business sales, less in business-to-consumer. So B2B has got a very peculiar dynamic. And that is buyers are risking their careers, mm-hmm. not risking their money. It's not even their money. You would think it'd be easier to be a B2B buyer, right? How hard can that be? It's not even my money. Oh, that's right. It's not my money. It's just my reputation, my future income, my kid's college education, my retirement. Oh, maybe it's more than my money. You know, maybe it's my life. So, I mean, if I go and buy a Tesla for myself, and then after driving it around for a day, I realize I'm allergic to electricity. I can't <laughs> own a Tesla. These things are, they're, nobody told me they had electricity in them. Darn it. You know, that's it's worse, than, worse than hay fever, right? So I go dump the Tesla on the market and say I'm out 10,000 bucks. I can make up that $10,000 over time. But if I buy that equivalent $70,000 system for my company and everybody hates it and it's hard to implement, and it produces results that are deceptive for us, et cetera, et cetera. I'm kind of toast. I'm mm-hmm. the person who brought something in after due consideration. And yet I'm a generalist. I'm a B2B buyer. I'm a generalist. I have a job to do. I can't specialize in that thing I'm buying. The salesperson who's selling it to me is the specialist. They know more than I do about the nature of this problem. I know more than they do about the nature of my situation. So when we come together, the first thing that has to happen is I've got to trust them with my career. And what's so interesting is the only way we know how to do that is in human to human conversations. We actually don't know how to do it with data. Absolutely. You think of, you know, you might get the best email that you've gotten that that really explains a problem that you might have. But until you engage with the person who sent it or the person that they're telling you to talk to, and they can really articulate that they understand your problem, we see all over the place, you know, lists of problems that that people solve. Every email you get um, from somebody you don't know is, you know, you might have this problem, you might have this problem, but that, that doesn't enable trust. That also doesn't enable buying because... I mean, I could be wrong here, but I don't think very often people have responded to one of those cold emails and said, okay, you know, here's my banking information. Please send, send your solution to me. There, there has to be a follow-up. There has to be conversation. And if we're not enabling conversations to happen promptly and easily and with the right people, if we're putting a lot of friction in that process, we're just slowing the buying. It's not even the selling that you're slowing down. It's literally the buying and, and what people want to do. Yeah, I I just think that's the big deal. I mean, and the friction is interesting in that this, I'll call it the first order friction, which is, can we get a conversation at all? Human conversation grew rapidly in 2003, 2004, 2005. And it it happened and people didn't really notice it happening. 
you know, mm. they would complain about it a little bit, but they didn't notice it. And it was two factors that came together. One was universal caller ID. And the other was very inexpensive computer storage became universal. And therefore, it was cheap enough that, that you could have voicemails just being left all over the place. Because mm-hmm. voicemail is very expensive in terms of storage on a computer. Back in 1998, you wouldn't dream of storing voicemails in any large quantity on a computer. And so the computerized voicemail systems tended to be locked off from the outside world and only used for internal communication. By 2003, they were wide open. If you called somebody and they weren't there, that call would go to voicemail. But now if you called somebody and they looked at the caller ID and they didn't want to talk to you, they were just a little uncertain, they'd let it go to voicemail too. And then voicemail answering behavior or or listening behavior changed radically. By 2006, voicemail listening behavior was down by 90% Mm -hmm. compared to 2003. So now you have this black hole into which human voices, the only thing that can build trust, are going. They're just collapsing, going down the drain into this world where nobody listens. And so we started trying other things. You know, let's send emails. Okay, let's go to conferences. Those are pretty good. If you can go to the right conferences, they're very expensive, but you can meet people and good things can happen. But all this other digital communication became tempting partly because it got so hard to get a live human conversation with somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually our whole business is in 1975, 1980, you'd call somebody and they'd either answer the phone or they'd call you back. That was just the protocol. Now it's not that, right? So at Connect and Sell, our whole thing is let's go back to like 1980, not mm-hmm. with everything, not with the hairstyles or whatever. Um, but, you know, let's go back to humans being able to talk to humans. And the, the interesting thing about all of this to me is when, when you talk about the sequence of operations in order to get to somebody being comfortable buying from somebody who used to be a stranger, but now they, they've taken on as their trusted advisor, how do you get there? What are the, what are the steps? So the very first step is to get trust with the human voice. At least it's the best step. And you only have seven seconds to do it, according to Chris Voss. And Chris Voss should know, the the author of Never Split the Difference, FBI hostage negotiator. They studied this stuff and they found out that in a cold call, whether it's for a, a hostage situation or you're ambushing a stranger on the phone, you have seven seconds to get trust after which it's too late. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. Absolutely. I might need to have you talk to my mom and explain that when she leaves me a voicemail and I call her back, I am following the trend that has been established since 2006. Um, (laughs) I definitely am the person who never, ever, ever listens to a voicemail. I'm like, why don't I just call you? And I'm sure you can tell me what you left in that voicemail. And then if you're a business person and left me a voicemail, um, you know, if you're a client, I will probably listen to it. Otherwise, uh, it goes into that wonderful black hole. Um, That's... That's just such a a great understanding of both the trends that have happened and into why it is that so many organizations have been really struggling. Um, You know, you see a lot of times organizations saying, you know, like like I've mentioned before, I just need more leads. I just need more leads. If I got more leads, I'd be fine. And then they get those lists, they get those leads, and they're not fine. 
And then the next thing we hear is, okay, maybe um, I just need more meetings. And if I get more meetings scheduled, then I'll be fine. And my team will just be able to close all of those meetings. And I think that really speaks to, as you were saying before, there's always going to be a constraint. And as you open up flow in one area, you might see a a future constraint that's happening because maybe you get those meetings and people aren't as capable of having them (laughs) as they thought they would be. Um, Or maybe you don't have the operational ability to absorb that many new prospects or new clients. Um, Maybe you can't do that many demos or you can't, um, you know, spin up so many clients. And so this idea of finding the, the first point of constraint and then you know, as as you might open that up, seeing what constraints pop up. Is that something that you see in your clients? Absolutely. I mean, to, to me, the greatest delight is when the constraint moves away from the flow of conversations and moves into what happens in those meetings, mm-hmm. which is not our business. It just says that we we've, we've done our thing. And I love it when the constraint moves down funnel. Sometimes the constraint moves the other direction. Mm-hmm. That is... Now we don't even know who to talk to. We just talk to everybody and we don't know who to talk to. Okay. So it'll, you know, constraints move in somewhat mysterious ways, but they're easy to find. Goldratt taught us in the world of manufacturing, you look for the machine that has the inventory built up in front of it and is starved downstream. Mm-hmm. No inventory for the, you know, to, that, that could be consumed by the next step in the process. So it's pretty easy with CRM systems to look in and say, huh, it looks to me like you know, we have extra capacity to take meetings and therefore the constraint is probably up funnel from that. No, look, we have a million people to talk to and we've only talked to 10 of them. Okay, that's inventory, right? So we can find the constraint. Characterizing it is harder mm-hmm. because we have to think. We have to think like manufacturing engineers, which salespeople tend, sales managers tend not to do. What is the cycle time of this particular operation? What's its throughput today? How many units does it produce per unit time? And what's the quality? What percentage of what it produces actually gets processed into the next step successfully? And what percentage gets scrapped? All of that, you know, we kind of have to do if we want to make a sales machine. And by sales machine, I don't mean one where the humans aren't human. Mm-hmm. And the essence of sales is human, but it's where the activities and the flows are organized in a way that we can go find the constraint and we can invest in it. And, you know, the reason people don't do this is twofold. One is it's actual hard intellectual work. You have to, you know, it's definite, right? People don't <laughs> like definite because of another thing, which is politics. Nobody wants to be the person who's executing the thing that nobody is going to invest in. Uh-huh. And yet we shouldn't invest in almost anything, just the constraint. So it's a big leadership challenge and a cultural challenge to get folks on board with, hey, as a team, this is how we know we're a team. Many of us are willing to be ignored while we focus on the constraint. It's good. It's okay. We'll get our turn later. And I think that one's really, really tough. Absolutely. And uh, I love that just philosophy, that approach of, of looking at it like a machine, but that you also clarified here, it's a machine in terms of the process, but there's still people in that process. And 
it can be easy to just look to technology as the solution and say, okay, I'm going to get an AI, you know, nurture email system. And it's going to look like there's a real person, but it's actually going to be a computer and they're going to schedule the meetings and it's going to be perfect. And that might end up being one of the ways that you handle whatever constraint um, you address. But it seems like a lot of times there's an initial Maybe we've got a constraint. Let's just throw something at it and move on to something else and not really looking at it and focusing on it, as you've said, and throwing all the resources that you can toward it. Because as you as you can consistently remove these constraints and open up blockages, you can be significantly improving performance. It's not just a matter of, you know, a little bit of tweaks around the edges, but if you first open that spigot at the very top, right, and and you've got a lot of qualified meetings with qualified prospects, as you said, if you don't run out of people to call because you 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 actually called through that list, you have the potential to massively expand the business in terms of the the number of demos you're doing, the number of new clients you're onboarding, and that is going to really test every system that you might have already put into place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what what happens, and I come out of the world of manufacturing originally. I used to build manufacturing systems. And when you want to increase the flow rate of quality goods coming out of a factory, you have to commit to following the constraint flow, as you've described it, where you open up a, a bottleneck, you open up a constraint. Now, it shows up somewhere else. Right? You've got to chase it all the way through until you've actually increased the flow rate of quality goods through the whole system. And that takes commitment. That's a big management commitment. And the most common error is to change one thing and say, oh, no, we didn't get any more out of the, uh, you know, out of the pipe at the end. Well, you might not. <laughs> you might not. <laughs> or you might get a little burst. And then a new, the new constraint shows up somewhere else. And now you got to go and find it and, you know, understand it and, and do something about it. This is the essence of management. This is what modern management is all about. And sales, quite frankly, I think needs to come under management. Sales management tends not to occur. I hate to say it, but I mean, standard sales management is hire a rep, put them in a territory. And when they don't work out, fire them. But make sure you tell them a bunch of war stories along the way about how great you were when you were a rep. I mean, that's kind of sales management, right? Uh, There's another factor now also, which is your salespeople, your top talent, can walk out the door without taking a step. It used to be they'd have to move to another city to take the the next best job, unless your most wonderful competitor was in the same town. And now they can go work for somebody else just from their home or, you know, traveling a little or whatever. My fiance, Helen Finucci, is writing a book on this subject. And her point is, the book's called Love Your Team. She has a podcast about it also. And it's not like lovey-dovey kind of stuff. It's like, this is a survival guide for sales managers in a world where your top talent can walk out the door just because they want to walk out the door. And in a system that isn't being worked continuously and made better, people get disaffected. They get frustrated because their efforts are not producing final results. They might even be making their number and it's still like, yeah, but you know, where's the mission, right? If we're not working together on the system as a whole. So I think this is a big part of making great cultures too, is to get into the idea that, hey, 
we are building and tuning and evolving a system for the good of others who consume what it is that we produce. Mm. And, and that as a cultural bedrock can really bring people together and help them overcome the politics that keeps us from working on the constraint. Absolutely. I've seen so many times where salespeople leave because they see a constraint later in the process that makes them look bad. You know, you'll see salespeople stop selling because they see that you're not able to effectively deliver. And they'll just kind of put the brakes on without telling you they're putting the brakes on. And depending on the situation, they might also be, you know, joining the job market without telling you that they're joining the job market. And it's all because they don't have confidence that they could sell something that can be delivered. And no good salesperson is willing to threaten their reputation in the industry, the relationships they've built over the course of their career for something that they're not sure can be solved. And so if they don't see that you're really working on those constraints, they're going to vote with their feet because they have to, to live according to their values and to follow through on who they want to be in the world. Yeah, they can vote with their feet now without putting on their hard pants too. I mean, it's exactly. pretty wild. Yep. So it's, it's, it's quite an interesting situation we find ourselves in. Buyers have always behaved consistently with regard to the quality of the salesperson. The buyer looks at it like this, quite rationally. Great salespeople can represent any product. This is a great salesperson, so this product's probably okay. Mm -hmm. That's actually the reasoning because you can't evaluate the products. It's impossible. You're a generalist. How in the world could any of us evaluate a modern product? Really? We have to trust somebody else. And who do we trust? Well, the best salesperson. Why? Because we know they could sell any product, so they must be selling the best one. And that, that process is actually, in a way, kind of cleansing for, for all of us in a funny way, right? The fact that salespeople can move around. And I would expect there's going to be a lot more pressure on delivery because mm -hmm. of the increased mobility of salespeople. So when you get into your kind of your peak years of selling and you're in your, say, your, your 40s or your 50s and you're really, really good at what you do, you're established in your community also. So you've got, you know, the kids are at school, you've got friends, you've got you know, clubs, associations, you have your church, whatever it is, that's your anchor. And it used to anchor you to your company also because of physical proximity. And that is no longer the case. So managers have got to get on board with the notion that your number one customer is your top sales rep. Absolutely. And that's something it's interesting because that's a conversation that you're seeing happening. And I don't know if it's with this context and with this understanding, you know, you hear stories about the great resignation, you talk to leaders. Um, we actually, uh, our CEO, Charles Bernard uh, is a speaker and he was recently talking to the leader of a group that he's going to be speaking to. And it's, it's a group of CEOs. And he asked them to survey, what are the biggest issues that your team is concerned about? So he could make sure that he addresses those in his talk. And all of the top issues people had were around retaining talent, um, 
getting the most out of people, making sure that they that their team feels supported. And then their secondary concern was hiring because they know they're not going to do a perfect job of the first one and they want to make sure that they can hire into it. And it is such a focus for leaders, but I think a lot of the ways that people are looking to support their team are very haphazard and and just kind of fluffy. You know, it's we sent you a shirt, we we sent you a water bottle, we you know you you can wear your soft pants even into the office if you want to. Um, and it, it organizations aren't always thinking about there's there's the real life situation reasons that people might leave, right? They don't have the time to support their family the way they need to. They don't have, you know, some other thing. But then there's also, I don't feel fulfilled because I don't see the value in what it is that we're doing. Or I feel like I could work as hard as I can and do my job the best I can. And it's not going to turn into something because the next team would fail. And those are things that you can solve for. And it's it's not easy. You know, there's there's some hard work associated with it, but it's incredibly valuable for your organization to to really take that focus. And also just by demonstrating to your team that this is something you're working on, you're showing them that you care and you're showing them that you take them seriously. And that's a really big factor that you hear from a lot of people who've left organizations if they just feel like as as you said you know things are just kind of staying the same getting worse and nobody's working on it nobody's addressing it um i don't want to you know i'm not going to stay on the sinking ship <laughs> until it hits the bottom exactly i i think people naturally uh, and deming taught us this many many years ago right people work for pride of workmanship not for money and part of pride of workmanship is knowing and having evidence, regular evidence, because it decays pretty quickly, that what you're doing is doing good for somebody else. And so if your delivery team isn't delivering, that's part of it right there. And then there's also, does it fit? You know, am I doing something that fits me? And not every job is, is suited for every person. And within sales, this can be true. I was just listening to a conversation the other day that this person who is in kind of the customer success part of sales had got reorganized into a job that required that they were more persuasive over the long term with regard to actually using the product in question mm-hmm. rather than prescriptive and helping in actually getting the use to have, you know, the, the usage out of it. That is, it was, it, it was more of a sales job and this person's personality didn't fit that at all. And management could have just left this person there to underperform. I happen to have gotten to listen to a conversation where the conversation was about the fit of the job to the person and whether it made sense for them to move to another job within the company in order to solve the problem. And it was very objective. It was very straightforward. Obviously, there's a lot of emotion under the covers, right? Nobody likes to feel like they're failing. But it was, it's the kind of conversation that I think people have to get very, very good at having. Management is done through conversations, just like sales is done through conversations. And in sales, we're kind of okay at characterizing or categorizing the conversations as being for this purpose or that purpose in the sales process. I think in management, we haven't been through that evolution yet. We don't have, now I'll apologize for this word. I, I came out of the world of electronic cataloging for a while. 
we don't have an ontology of conversations to say, under this circumstance, I should pull this kind of conversation off the shelf, so to speak, and apply it with this person. And I know that sounds a little mechanistic, but it's not the case at all. It's just different circumstances call for different categories of conversations with different purposes. And managers need to be experts at having those conversations. And if they're not today, they need to be working on it. And I think that is the work that people feel that makes them have hope to you know, keep on going in this organization instead of go to another one. Absolutely. I think one thing that's especially uh, a problem in sales, and I don't know if it's unique to sales, but I think it you see it almost more often than anywhere else, is in sales, so many of the leaders, so many of the managers are top performers who were promoted into management. And you can be very successful if you were a top salesperson and you became a manager. But you have to understand and your organization has to understand that there are different skill sets to being a top salesperson than being a really effective manager. And through training and through support, maybe having an operations manager or sales ops person or whatever um, is necessary. And through uh, the permission to focus on the right kinds of activities. You can be successful, but so often, you know, as you said, the sales manager is really good at telling war stories. They're really good at coming in and taking over a meeting and closing the deal when necessary. And, you know, they can kind of coach and mentor new hires, but they don't necessarily have that process perspective. And it's it's not their fault, right? It's just, it's they were never really given the support or the training or the the remit to focus on it. And it is just a matter of kind of adding to your skill set, adding to your ability, adding to your, you know, quiver of weapons, whatever you might want to call it, um, knowing the the kinds of skills that you can implement in specific situations. Yeah, I love the, it's, as I listen to you, I think of something that is obviously true, but we don't say that it's true, which is when you become a sales manager for the first time, you're a beginner. And if you were a top performer, you haven't been a beginner for a long time. So you're probably not very good at being a beginner. And that's what you have to get good at. You have to, you have to shed the notion that you're a big performer and you have to embrace the fact that you're trying something entirely new. You probably don't have any great models for it. You you may have to go out and find resources on your own because, frankly, if you hope your company does it well, you might be disappointed. And yet you have this immense power to help people that you can exercise, but you're going to do it from a point of being a beginner. You've you've gone from, from being a speed skater to being a golfer. It sort of doesn't translate. That's a great analogy. And I think that that also really addresses, you know, what you were talking about before, in terms of where people a lot of times hit a great level in their sales career. I've seen a number of people achieve incredible success at sales, and then hit a point in their life. And, you know, the totality of who they are, where they don't want to have to have the lifestyle 
of a top salesperson in their industry. They don't want to have to do as much travel. They don't want as many evening meetings and events that they have to go to. And whether it's they've got kids at home or, or whatever the situation might be, they, they want to have a more predictable schedule. And they also, some of them I've heard, you know, they want to contribute to others. They want to feel that they're helping people, that they're seeing people grow and learn. And if you can really articulate that desire, then I think you can be more open to the idea of now I have to learn how to be successful in my new role. But if it is just a matter of, hey, I want a promotion because I've had the same title for a long time and I'm going to be a player coach, it it is pretty easy to just say, I'm going to do the level of mentoring and support that I've always kind of done. You know, they'd throw the new reps at me and they'd they'd drive around in my car with me, attend meetings with me. I might ask them what they observed. Um, And... (laughs) That's that's the easiest of all possible management things to do and, and not nearly as effective as a lot of these these other skills that we're discussing today. Yeah, I, th- I mean, this to me is the biggest transition, much bigger even than the transition from being an engineer to being an engineering manager, which is a tough one in, its, in and of itself. I was fairly familiar with that at one point. I think becoming a sales manager is is one of the walls of fire that you you've got to really steal yourself to go through and you've got to be, be prepared to be pretty humble because you're not going to know what to do. And you're going to be under pressure to get results that you actually don't get to create anymore. I think mm-hmm. that's why sales managers often walk into those meetings and close the deal mm-hmm. because they can't resist attempting to do that. And also they're under pressure to produce results that frankly, they're not ready to produce. The team might be, and maybe if they left them alone, they'd get pretty good results. But it's so tempting to kind of do it my way. You know, my way closes right now and your way. I don't know what's going to happen. So it's it's a fascinating, fascinating world. And it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, has a lot to do with people just like sales does. As I said, you're, you're at, a, at a company now, your top salesperson is your number one customer. So your sales manager of that person better get that and know what that means and still be able to uh, to work with that person and, and those people in a way that allows them to perform in a classic mm-hmm, sales mm-hmm. kind of way, right? Performance is a big deal. So, yeah, it's it is it's kind of funny because whether it's sales management or whether it's selling, it's kind of conversations all the way down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But not just any conversation. And I'll go back to the to what we were talking about before with regard to engaging with customers. There's a very specific conversation you have with a stranger for the first time when you ambush them, the cold conversation. Mm-hmm. It's very, very specific. It has characteristics that no other conversation in sales or outside of sales ever has. And learning to understand that conversation, to execute on it, we've kind of boiled it down to five sentences, each one of which has a different purpose, each word has a different purpose, the emotional flow and the journey that you're taking somebody on emotionally is very, very specific. The timing is specific. And it might take you three months to master that first conversation, mm-hmm. but it's worth it because you can't have a second one without a first one. That's <laughs> a funny thing. Hard to count to two unless you count to one, right? And I think in management, we have the same thing. There are very specific kinds of conversations we have to learn how to master. And it's not going to happen overnight. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as you said, if you do it for a long period of time and you have a lot of those conversations, eventually you learn what to do. Hopefully, if you're, you know, if you have the ability to kind of take a step back and realize what's working and what's not, but it is, it is work and it takes effort and focus and you have to be looking for it as opposed to just kind of blindly moving ahead with the things you've always done. Well, I, I'm looking at the clock and I realized we have, <laughs> I've loved our conversation and we could probably keep talking forever and ever and ever, but um, need to wind things down. So a question I always like to ask our guests is, do you have any resources that you could recommend to our listeners? You've already kind of shared a couple in passing, but is there anything specific that you would recommend that people check out that's kind of helped you uh, learn and grow? Well, it's interesting. It kind of depends on, on one's bent. Um, I, I shouldn't recommend my own podcast, but I will because it was made innocently. It's just an attempt to write a book. And if you're interested in, as, as a listener, in the world of using the human voice to reliably dominate markets, to make things happen, and, and to do it in ways that might kind of surprise you that there's a fair amount of science in, feel free to check out Corey and Corey Frank and myself and guests that we've had on the Market Dominance Guys podcasts. And I've had some people binge listen to every episode uh, and change their business as a result. And so it has, it sometimes has that impact. Uh, I also am fascinated by what's going on. Again, this is very close to home, but I'm learning by watching and listening to my fiance, Helen Fanucci, who is the greatest sales manager I've ever seen in my life. And I actually didn't believe in sales management until I watched her do it. I always thought sales management was this myth. As 40-something years of building businesses, you'd think I would have seen it at some point and gone, wow, that's great sales management. But she approaches this from this perspective that um, you know, she's an MIT-trained mechanical engineer who's had a very successful career in tech sales and tech sales management. And her Love Your Team podcast, I think, is just... It's just getting going. But if you, if you think about our current situation as, as business people and salespeople and sales managers in a world that has changed a lot, where it's, it's not going back the way it was, it's changed hugely, the practical advice of what kind of conversations to have and how to have them are over there on that Love Your Team podcast. And I highly recommend you, you know, anybody who wants to kind of get that holistic view uh, it's it's actually kind of a handbook, as she calls it, a survival guide for sales managers in a hybrid world. And I think we all need to pay attention to it. I'm certainly, I listened to every one of the, her episodes three times, and then we're pretty geeky, so we put them up on the big screen in the evening and you know sip a whiskey and uh, and critique the the podcast episodes. Uh, I admire her fortitude in listening to her own voice and, and seeing herself. That is. Not my favorite thing to do, but I will definitely be checking that out. That sounds fascinating. All right, Chris, if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Well, I'm at uh, chris.beal at connectandsell.com. I'm probably most easily reached on LinkedIn. And, you know, I'm Chris Beal, B-E-A-L-L, CEO of Connect and Sell. I'm not very hard to find. There's usually a fair amount of stuff going on around me on LinkedIn. And then again, the Market Dominance Guys podcast. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways of getting a hold of me through that. And our website, the connectandsell.com website. I'll tell anybody who's listening, if you want to have a ton of conversations and have a very, very interesting time doing it, 
just uh, see whether you qualify for one of our test drives. It's a full day of production use of Connect and Sell, and it is ferociously fast and a great deal of fun and quite enlightening. Absolutely. We didn't really get into um, into that conversation today, but I know your perspective on demo versus test drive uh, is interesting, and I think people would be very interested in learning more about that, so they can find that on your website. All right. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Chris. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It was great, Elizabeth. Thanks a lot. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into the show today. You can find the notes and resources for everything Chris and I have been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three, four, three. If you enjoyed the show today, please, please, please recommend this to a friend. That is the best way to help more people discover the show. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure to do that wherever it is that you're listening right now. That way you get every new episode without having to hunt it down. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or your player of choice. Or you can email us if you've got any direct feedback, questions, guest suggestions. You can email podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ryland Sylvester. Happy selling!